In a conflict that staged over 10,000 fights, Virginia led as a theater of war. The volunteer state of Tennessee, second. What surprises many is that the third most active theater in the American Civil War was the border state of Missouri, a slave-holding state that remained within the Union. There, the curtain for violence rose long before Confederate forces opened fire on Fort Sumter. Indeed, on any night from 1855 until the summer of 1865, an attack on any town or settlement in Missouri or across the border in Kansas could strike like a bolt of lightning from a clear blue sky. In both states, lingering ill will and vicious fighting erased the line between civilian and soldier, armed violence with Old Testament vengeance and fury. In short, the worst guerrilla war in American history. And now, the uncivil border war between Kansas and Missouri. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, Stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Under a moon five nights past full, eight men with ill will moved. Their intent was eye for an eye justice, retribution for the recent sacking of Lawrence, in the territory of Kansas. Word had it, five anti-slave men had been killed there, so five pro-slave lives were required this night. To Pottawatomie Creek they headed, an area known to be sympathetic to the peculiar institution. The first homestead they reached belonged to James Doyle, a quiet, hard-working man. Doyle was not politically active, but on this night, May 24th, 1856, he and his family would be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Around midnight, a knock at his door. Someone needed directions, asked to come in. Though late in hour, the door swung open and all eight men pushed in. Seven were visibly nervous, but not their militant leader. John Brown's eyes were cold cruel. Upon his orders, the father James and his two eldest sons, William and Drury, were seized and forced outside. Allowed to remain behind, 16-year-old John and Doyle's wife, Mahala. Outside, frontier vengeance came swiftly, savagely. James Doyle was shot in the forehead, stabbed in the chest. His two sons hacked to death. Three pro-slavery men were dead, but Old Testament vengeance required two more. The next victim, Alan Wilkinson, a quiet, inoffensive man, but a member of the pro-slave territorial legislature. Ignoring the pleas of his wife, who was sick in bed with measles, he, too, was led out into the night and cut down. One more life, and it was claimed at their next stop. The victim, the pro-slave tavern keeper with an ironic name, William Sherman. 
He was found the next day half-submerged in Potawatomi Creek, his skull split in two places, a large hole in his chest, and his left hand completely severed from his body. Welcome to America's heartland. Welcome to bleeding Kansas and what would become civil war within a civil war. The two factions of this unholy border war, Jayhawkers from Kansas, which entered the Union in the last days of January 1861, the 34th state and a free state. On its eastern border, Missouri, the 24th state, a state that joined the Union as a slave state back in August of 1821. Yes, Missouri, its very name given to a sectional compromise in 1820, which brought a dividing nation time, but as compromises go, doomed future generations to forcibly settle what Congress could not, would not. A slave state dominated by free white yeoman farmers, a state which refused to secede. Ranked 11th out of 16 states that held slaves in 1860, the numbers, social and economic effect of slavery in Missouri were marginal. With those in bondage compromising only 9.7% of the state's population, most Missourians resented those that held them, the fewer in number, an older would-be aristocracy. Thanks to St. Louis, a developing market economy helped to shape their animosity. Missouri's votes in the 1860 presidential election reflected their unique situation. The candidate who championed popular sovereignty, Stephen A. Douglas, carried the state. Close behind was compromise, Constitutional Union candidate John Bell. The Southern Democrat who supported slavery, Kentucky's John C. Breckinridge, was a distant third. And dead last, the Republican, Abraham Lincoln. Most of his votes came from the despised German-Americans who made St. Louis their home and who made up the highest percentage of foreign-born for any city in the country at that time. Though Breckenridge finished third, slaveholders in Missouri did call for a secession convention, but unionists carried the day by a majority of 80,000 votes. Geographically, the minority who hoped to secede were concentrated in the west-central area of the state, where hemp was grown, or east-central, where tobacco was the cash crop. In Missouri, only one family in eight held slaves. In contrast, in the lower south, one of every two. In other words, in Missouri, cotton was not king. Neither was hemp or tobacco. Corn and hogs were. The average Missourian was a Methodist from Kentucky who owned a 215-acre farm, held no slaves, produced most of the family's subsistence, sold and bought within a local service economy, and was increasingly tied via cash crops, purchase of machinery, and consumer goods to external markets in St. Louis and to the east. Straddling the sectional fence, the majority of Missourians simply wanted to be left alone. But Civil War would not allow that. Militarily speaking, after the March 1862 Union victory at Pea Ridge, Arkansas, 
Missouri remained under Union control for the remainder of the war. And therefore, many families that did hold slaves found themselves trapped behind Union lines or lived alongside federal camps and families. Yet, slaveholders, and even quite a few non-slaveholders, resented Union occupation and hated its excess. And as one, they absolutely hated the abolitionist press, which stereotyped them all as poor white trash as pukes. Abolitionist Charles B. Stearns particularly addressed the slave-holding faction when he said, When I deal with men made in God's image, I will never shoot them. But these pro-slavery Missourians are demons from the bottomless pit and should be shot with impunity. To these so-called superior beings, Missourians returned the disdain, particularly when the abolitionist press and most Northerners viewed neighboring free state Kansas as a ready agent for cleansing the, as they believed, unholy slave-infested state to its east. To abolitionists, Kansans were descended from Puritans, from Yankees, from American reformers. Another interesting condition, though Missourians were largely Unionist, many resented anti-Southern feelings because they hailed from the South, therefore felt it was their duty to protect Southern honor. And so, in a rare moment of unity, Missouri slaveholders, pro-slave Missourians, and non-slaveholding families with Southern roots believed Kansas Free Staters Abolitionists, so-called black Republicans, and St. Louis Germans represented outside agitation and oppression. As we opened, the vicious cycle began during the 1850s. Indeed, the first bloodshed came in December of 1855, when an anti-slavery settler was murdered. And as it would be repeated, that act prompted retaliation, revenge, and revenge prompted vengeance. The violence forced people who hoped to remain neutral to take sides. Be reminded that most Missourians were conditional Unionists, but raids and guerrilla war destroyed the middle ground. From 1855 to 1861, many Missourians reacted violently against the anti-slave element in neighboring Kansas. So much so, that after the firing on Fort Sumter in April 1861, Kansans believed they had a righteous license to punish their neighbors. They needed a leader, and Charles Doc Jennison willingly fulfilled that role. A physician from New York, he was short, slender, a jayhawker with coarse, crude habits. In 1861, bent on payback directed at Missouri bushwhackers, he led a raid into western Missouri, where with so many men away for the war, the true victims of the incursion were defenseless women and children. Jennison and his men hit Jackson County, where many pro-slave border ruffians called home. Other targets were Independence, Kansas City, and Westport. At each site, the same tactics, intimidation, ransacking, burning, physical violence. Another who vindictively struck at Missouri was the newly elected United States Senator from Kansas, 
James Henry Lane. He led 1,500 men called the Kansas Brigade. Though called a brigade, they were essentially thieves and cutthroats. Lane hit Missouri like Jennison while many men were away. In late September of 1861, the Kansas Brigade sacked Osceola in central southwestern Missouri. As a result, some 3,000 were left homeless. An abolitionist, Lane took a further stab at Missourians by stealing their slaves and property, which Lane and his men later auctioned off on the black market back in Kansas. Another early-in-the-war raid was led by James Montgomery, who had followed John Brown back in the 1850s. Montgomery led a September 17th raid on Morristown, Missouri. To Jennison, Lane, and Montgomery, Missouri had to suffer because it had hit Kansas earlier. Like in physics, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so pro-Southern Missourians had to retaliate. Mine Creek, Gardner, Aubrey, and Humboldt, Kansas were struck. With each raid, more were forced to side with one faction or the other. The result? Bands were created. Some created thanks to civil war, some for simple protection, and there were some who simply played upon the chaos, the absence of law and order, and so they preyed on both sides. That group robbed banks, counterfeited, stopped and plundered wagon trains. At this early stage in the war, it was Charles Jennison's force that inflicted the most damage. One of his units was led by Daniel Anthony, the brother of abolitionist Susan B. Anthony. On January the 1st, 1862, Anthony and his men raided Dayton, Missouri, and torched 46 of 47 homes. Columbus suffered the next week. On the 8th of January, Pleasant Hill, and that town for the third time. From a nearby elevation, an eyewitness counted 160 homes ablaze. This was not war. It was personal. And for some, it must be said, it was just plain sport. That fact evidenced when Jennison's men, riding under the national flag and in Union Blue, hit Chapel Hill, Missouri, which was largely Unionist. 150 houses were burned. Attacks like this definitely pushed some Unionists into Southern ranks, if for no other reason than for protection. By March of 1862, most of the Jayhawkers were back in Kansas. However, one Kansas group kept up the destruction. George Hoyt's Redlegs, the name given them by their distinctive red leggings. One specialty of theirs was taking stolen horses and livestock and like Lane's men, auctioning the stolen property back in Kansas. Another specialty? Terror. In this civil war within a civil war, the discipline of raiders, regardless of allegiance, depended on the strength of will of their commander. Those we have mentioned thus far, and those who led Missourians in retaliation more times than not, lacked restraint often because their war was personal. As a Kansan put it, old scores are all settled, 
and with a tolerable fair interest. Kansas regiments decided early on that warring on civilians would be policy, particularly in the western counties of Missouri. What kind of men made up these ranks? Almost all jayhawkers and guerrillas were young men. Most believed they were doing the right thing, even if it meant robbery, arson, or murder. Yet, while savage to men, strangely, all were defenders of women and children. We have few diaries or letters, but with what few we do, no question, the obsessive theme was revenge. The raids and counter-raids into both Kansas and Missouri took civil war and made it unchristian, dirty, merciless. Too often, the knock on the door in the middle of the night meant intimidation, destruction, and murder. Therefore, each day and night, far too many civilians lived under a black cloud, beset by uncertainty, insecurity. War here was by stealth, hit-and-run movements without a front, little formal organization, and with little distinguishing between civilian and soldier. Terror was constant. In both Kansas and Missouri, thousands of brutal moments. Any attack spawned retaliation, and usually worse than before. In Missouri, one particular ethnic group was singled out by pro-Southern groups, German-Americans, and they knew it, so they organized and prepared for defense. Some communities survived by adapting to whatever rode into town. Sometimes opponents, in their effort to find some degree of normalcy, created unusual truces. For example, in Williamston, Missouri, up in the northeastern corner of the state, Northern Methodists met in a church in the morning. Southern Methodists then met in the same building in the afternoon. And then there were those who learned that one way to prove loyalty to one cause or the other was to constantly betray others. There were those who tried to avoid violence by survival lying, which meant telling what someone wanted to hear simply to get rid of them. Most Missourians would have been happy to remain neutral if only the two competing sides would let them. Remember that in 1860, 71% of the state voted conservative or compromised presidential candidates. But Kansas Jayhawkers and Missouri guerrillas forced civilians to choose. If you will remember, bands from Kansas under Jennison, Lane, Montgomery, and Hoyt had their way in 1861 and 62. Their raids payback to the Missouri border ruffians for their actions while Kansas had been a territory. However, in the spring of 62, the Missourians answered. One man in particular, Perhaps the most well-known of the guerrilla leaders, Captain William Clark Quantrell. A Buckeye from Ohio, he was thought good-natured, even-tempered. In 1855, he, at age of 18, headed west. For work, he drifted from one school-teaching job to another. All the while, he particularly enjoyed two pastimes. He liked to hunt and he enjoyed dallying with the ladies. His special preference, Indian white half-breeds. 
Regardless of his womanizing, he wrote regularly to his mother back in Ohio. But when his letters were not answered, he grew to resent her. While in Kansas, he defended anti-slavery free staters, even defending the notorious Jim Lane. But by 1860, he changed his mind. For their defense of abolitionist John Brown, Quantrell grew to hate anti-slavery Kansans, and that prompted his decision to leave. In 1859, he joined an expedition to Pikes Peaks gold fields, but misfortune found them. Caught in a Rocky Mountain blizzard, the expedition lost its way and most died. That experience profoundly affected him. Drifting back to Missouri, he obsessively began to wonder why, when so many had died, why he survived. Without family, with no tie to till the land, he was lonely, miserable. Then he began to reason that his being spared meant he was destined for something great. Sensing that destiny, he led a raid to Aubrey, Kansas in March of 1862. It was his first. During it, he shot his old school superintendent. Upon their return to Missouri, his men were surprised and attacked by a federal patrol near Little Santa Fe, Missouri, the night of March the 22nd. Bloodied, most escaped, but it was a lesson he never forgot. He vowed never to be surprised like that again. He knew he had to stay one step ahead of his enemy, for federal policy at that time was to treat Missouri bushwhackers like highwaymen, and that policy angered Quantrell, who believed his men soldiers and his mission a legitimate crusade. In July of 1862, he learned a Missourian had been captured and executed on the 28th of that month at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. At that very moment, he held three anti-slavery prisoners from a previous raid. So, to retaliate, he executed all three. Again, Old Testament justice. No quarter and practiced by both sides. And despite the take-no-prisoners conditions, rather than men shying away from participation, numbers and raids increased. The black flag policy that both sides practiced was the tangible and visible manifestation of unbridled hate. Guerrilla Hiram George explained his motivation this way. Jayhawkers burned and took everything I had. Killed my father, hung my brother. Another who continued his lawlessness after the war, Cole Younger. He justified his brutality with, The knowledge that my father had been killed in cold blood filled my heart with the lust for vengeance. And then, from the brother of Jesse James Frank, there was a certain appeal to follow a man like Quantrell. Frank wrote, I will never forget the first time I saw him. He was nearly six feet in height, rather thin, his hair and mustache sandy, and he was full of life and a jolly fellow. He had none of the air of the bravado or the desperado about him. We all loved him at first sight. Quantrell's success, and for that matter, the success for all Missouri guerrillas, 
can be better gauged when one understands the lay of the land in Missouri and the weapon of choice they used. Across the border in Kansas, much was open prairie, but in Missouri, there were broken valleys, dense woods, hollows, thicks, and ravines, excellent places from which to strike, escape, hide, make camp. As to a weapon, most chose the 36 caliber Navy Colt. It was light, durable, accurate. Four, five, or six would be loaded and stuffed into a belt. The Federals who pursued them were usually issued one-shot carbines, sabers, and an inferior pistol that proved no match. Even the quality of mount favored the guerrilla. And those mounts carried Quantrell's men into Kansas on September the 6th, 1862. The Kansas town of Olathe, population about 1,000, was targeted. Once there, all of the men were herded into the town square while stores were looted. In the raid, two jayhawkers were riddled by bullet fire. Another's head was crushed by a cannonball. Yet Quantrell ordered that all women and children were to be protected. By 63, the vicious cycle of raid and retaliation was perpetual. Causes for civil war back east were here buried under mountains of personal vendettas and vengeance. Savagery which sprang from hate, and that hate spurred repeated acts of violence. One of Quantrell's lieutenants, George Todd, led a February raid which plundered Spring Hill, 30 miles southwest of Kansas City. Another lieutenant, Dick Yeager, hit the village of Marion. Stopping stagecoaches and robbing passengers, they then added the town of Gardner to their list. This raid particularly concerned Federals and Kansans, for Jaeger's men had pushed some 150 miles into Kansas and amassed some thirty to $40,000 in valuables and money. Then soon thereafter, Shawnee, Kansas was hit, and it wasn't the first time. For Federal Major General... James G. Blunt, he had had enough. In order to visually assure Unionists that something was being done, he began to publicly hang captured guerrillas. Interestingly, this prompted Quantrell to write Blunt a letter which informed him that the rules of war required exchange. Blunt's response captured the tenor of the times there when he wrote, the only constitutional right that will be granted them will be the right to make choice of the quality of rope with which they will be hung. And to drive the point home, for some 3,000 citizens in Kansas City, Blunt executed guerrilla Jim Vaughn. No surprise, retaliation was swift. Within days, guerrilla leader George Todd and his force ambushed a Union column near Westport, Missouri. Fourteen were killed outright. The number grew when wounded and helpless were murdered. When a federal relief force arrived, one found a slip of paper locked between the teeth of one victim. It read, Remember the dying words of Jim Vaughn. Blunt's tenure soon ended, and in his unenviable place came Brigadier General Thomas Ewing, Jr., the foster brother and brother-in-law 
of Union General William Sherman. With Ewing's arrival, tough new policies. Those that hit would be most assuredly hit back. Citizens who harbored guerrillas or possessed information would now be held accountable. A new level of terror reached such heights that Missouri Provisional Governor Hamilton R. Gamble wrote to the President Abraham Lincoln. His letter was never answered. Quite honestly, both governments, Union and Confederate, detested the bushwhacking and officially distanced themselves from it. But if it helped the cause, both were willing to look the other way. And so the scope of the uncivil war broadened. After one vicious red legs attack, guerrillas struck back and drove all the way to the Nebraska border. The counter raid netted around $50,000 and killed many. One of its leaders, Joe Hart, wrote his parents on July 13, 1863 I am going to kill off Andrew County every last devil, and they know it. When his letter reached his parents, it was soaked in blood, his own. Union Missouri militiamen shot him down near Spring Hill, Missouri, the same day he penned the letter. Meanwhile, Ewing erected a chain of forts and stockades every 12 miles, the entire length of the border between Kansas and Missouri. He also initiated a policy that forced families of known guerrillas from Missouri. Many were rounded up during the summer of 63. Some, mostly women, were confined in a three-story prison. About 2 p.m. on August the 13th, 1863, that structure collapsed. Five women died. When Quantrell learned that women had been victims... Something inside him snapped. In his mind, the Federals had crossed the line that was unthinkable. Defenseless women. There would be blood. On August the 19th, his force broke camp on the Blackwater River and headed west across the border. Word reached Lawrence, Kansas, the abolitionist town, that he was coming. But the timing was such that when he didn't arrive when expected... The town relaxed. Again, it was August of 63. Gettysburg and Vicksburg had been Union victories, and those in Lawrence, believing the Confederacy was on its last legs, had allowed military exercise and nightly patrols to grow lax. Yet, on the afternoon of the 20th, Quantrill crossed into Kansas near a Union military post at Aubrey, and they were spotted. An alarm went out, north and south, but curiously, not west. Also of note, the 100 cavalrymen at Aubrey failed to pursue the column. By dawn the next day, some 400 men, bent on bloody revenge, arrived on the outskirts of Lawrence, and not one citizen was aware of their presence. Within this well-known seat of anti-slave thought, some 3,000 Unionists, and even the Jayhawk leader, James Lane. It was also headquarters for the Redlegs and a haven for many fugitive slaves who had fled from or had been stolen from Missourians. It was around 5 a.m. 
when Sarah Fitch arose in southeastern Lawrence. Her husband, Edward, and three children were with her. As she moved about her home that morning, she heard a pistol shot. Then another, and another. Another citizen, Erastus Ladd, heard shots, then cheers. He watched petrified African-Americans run by. They were screaming. The success shift come. Part of Quantrell's men went straight for 22 unarmed federal recruits housed in tents. One young recruit, maybe 15, ran for his life. Bullets cut up the ground as he raced away. Then one struck home, and he sank to his knees. For God's sake, don't murder me. Don't murder me. The answer? No quarter for you federal sons of bitches. Back in town, Lawrence caught the wrath of those who believed they were avenging angels from the Almighty. Through the business district, Quantrell's men raced. Curiously, men found in the four-story Eldridge House Hotel were taken down to the city hotel by the river. There, Quantrell promised them protection. He did the same for all women and children. The town, however, was fair game. And so it was burned and plundered by many of Quantrell's men who were drunk with strong spirits and rage. Another hotel, the Johnson House, headquarters for the Redlegs, was marked and attacked. Any man who ventured out into the streets gunned down. Sarah Fitch's husband was one. Two pistols were emptied into him. Some searched for men that Quantrell had specifically designated. One was a Jayhawk preacher, Hugh Fisher, who had raided churches in Missouri. Fisher saved himself by wedging between a dirt embankment and the ceiling of his cellar. No surprise, Jim Lane was a coveted target. He fled in his nightshirt into a cornfield where he hid for hours. Meanwhile, more buildings were looted, torched. One citizen was found out on the street carrying a baby. Ordered to put the child down, he refused. When a revolver was placed to his head, he put the child on the ground and was promptly shot. Around 9 a.m., Quantrell's men headed south out of town for their dash back to Missouri. Any families or homes in their route back were hit. Behind the bleeding, smoking, and wrecked town of Lawrence. It's burning, seen some 30 miles away. And those fires claimed many. Some were burned beyond recognition. One lady was seen carrying the remains of her husband in a pail. The death toll, over 150 men and boys, more than 200 homes and businesses destroyed, an estimated $2.5 million in damages. The second largest city in Kansas, blackened, smoldering, the lingering trauma, devastating. Some women's hair turned white within days of the attack. Ewing and federal troopers gave chase, but Quantrell escaped with few casualties. And no question, the vicious will of get hit, then hit back continued. Missouri braced for a renewed round of violent retribution. When news of the massacre in Lawrence reached Richmond, 
The Confederate government refused to comment until they had all the facts. While the northern press railed of massacre and southern extolled the raid as justice served, Brigadier General Ewing acted. He ordered Union patrols to trace Quantrell's route. Anyone or thing thought to have aided his coming or going suffered. And four days after the attack, he signed General Order Number 11. All persons, save those known loyal within four Missouri border counties, some 20,000 were ordered off the land within 15 days. Soldiers, militia, redlegs gladly enforced the order. Evacuated homes burned. Anyone seen wearing a new hat, shirt, or rode a good horse, anything that may have come from pillaged Lawrence, was strung up. The roads were littered with refugees, young and old. By September the 9th, General Order 11 had been enforced to the letter. The evacuated area looked like a desert. It was a harsh act, a knee-jerk reaction. Some have called it the worst in U.S. governmental history. And by the fall of 1863, it obviously spawned more violence. A federal force, one that adopted guerrilla tactics, struck Nevada City, Missouri. Considered a bushwhacker's haven, 75 houses were torched. In response, a guerrilla, Thomas Livingston, led a group that surprised a federal foraging party of blacks and whites at Sherwood, Missouri. Sixteen were killed, most after surrendering. Stabbed through the hearts, heads beaten to jelly. On October the 6th, 1863, the most famous guerrilla struck again. 100 black and white federal soldiers prepared for lunch at Fort Blair in the southeastern corner of Kansas. Quantrell and his men surrounded them and moved in at noon. Attack completed. The guerrilla force began its retreat only by accident to ride into a federal column whereupon a second attack began. The federal column slaughtered. Its wagon train looted, burned, some 85 men cut down. Nearly all shot through the head. Many shot five to seven times apiece. Burned beyond recognition was a 12-year-old drummer boy. Later, a note was found near Fort Blair. It read, Remember the dying words of James Vaughn. Seems memories of spilled blood linger. Quantrell led his men south to winter in Texas, and as bloody 1863 ended, the only constant seemed to have been violence. The social fabric, particularly on the border between the two states, was such that law and order simply did not exist. Women, many widowed or alone, dealt with painful anxiety and isolation. Towns interpreted every cloud of dust as a new wave of attackers. The town of St. Joseph, Missouri, awoke one morning to find white X's painted on certain homes. All thought those living in marked homes had been targeted for death. And then word spread it was only the newsboy who was marking his route. That kind of paranoia was rampant. And if 1863 had been bad... 1864 would be worse. With the coming of the new year, 26-year-old Quantrail unbelievably lost interest in the struggle. 
He headed east to another border state, Kentucky, where he became a Confederate raider in the Bluegrass State. His lieutenants, however, still thirsted for action. By spring, George Todd, Bill Anderson, and Dick Yeager were back from Texas, and by summer, a new round of killing. Federal tactics now attempted to break down the guerrillas' system. Smaller patrols were organized to hold crossroads and fords. Anti-partisan units roamed with new hand signals, bugle calls, new hat ribbons to mark themselves differently from guerrillas who also wore blue. Union sentiment in the area? Let the Missourians feel the war. Guerrillas, their families, suspected friends, innocents who gave the wrong answer or who were at the wrong place or wrong time, faced a new wave of imprisonment, burning, looting, torture, killing. And in 1864, new atrocities. It seemed that with some, even killing was not enough. Scalps were taken. The wounded had their throats cut. Ears noses, and other body parts sliced away and used as trophies on belts and saddles, heads placed on road markers, on telegraph poles. In particular, two who used those tactics were the 2nd Colorado under James H. Ford and the 1st Kansas under Charles Jennison. With Missouri's western counties, those that bordered Kansas, empty because of General Order 11, guerrilla activity shifted to central Missouri. Though Quantrell was gone, there was a new leader, one of his lieutenants, 25-year-old Bloody Bill Anderson. He had been at Lawrence. The James boys rode with him. So did George Todd. Anderson's motivation surfaced in a story he submitted to a newspaper dated July 7, 1864. In his letter, he mentioned that when the war started, he lived in Kansas, but because he would not give battle against his native Missouri, Unionists sought his life. They failed to get him, but did murder his father, destroyed his property, murdered one of his sisters, and kept another in jail for 12 months. And so, like many before, he chose the route of vengeance, and in 1864 became, as one federal thought of him, the rider on the pale horse mentioned in the book of Revelations. Perhaps his family was in the back of his mind when he hit Federals at Centralia, Missouri, September the 27th. While there, a train on the North Missouri Railroad moved into view. Anderson and his men went after it. Boarding, they robbed everybody. 24 Union soldiers were also aboard. They were robbed, lined up outside, executed. In response, Federal cavalry pursued. Thinking they had Anderson's men trapped, they dismounted, only to find that Anderson had divided his force into three wings, and now each of them descended upon them. Approximately 120 Federals were killed. And not surprisingly, after the raid on Centralia and the slaughter of Federal troops, Central Missouri suffered retaliation. Meanwhile, in mid-September of 64, some semblance of accepted warfare entered the picture 
when 12,000 cavalrymen under Confederate Major General Sterling Price moved into Missouri for one last attempt to deliver Price's native state to the Confederacy. After an indecisive two-day fight at Pilot Knob in Missouri, Price decided rather than head toward St. Louis, he would head west toward Kansas. Guerrillas joined him. Price disdained their actions, but recruits were recruits. In October, with bloody Bill Anderson's help, federal troops and installations were hit along the North Missouri Railroad, New Florence, High Hill, Danville, Glasgow, the village of Miami. Simultaneously, George Todd led pro-Southern guerrillas in Southern Missouri. It was all Price could do to tolerate the tactics of the guerrillas, like the Unionist in Miami Township who was beheaded and left with his arms embracing his head. Federal forces made Anderson, who was now separate from Price, their target. To track him down, they even enlisted a former Indian scout and tracker Samuel P. Cox. With his help, Federals were able to draw Anderson and his men into battle near the little hamlet of Albany, Missouri. It was October 27, 1864. In the wild melee of battle, Anderson attempted to shoot his way through the Union line. But as he did, he was hit. Two bullets slammed into the left side of his head near his ear. When he fell dead, his men lost nerve and dispersed. His death broke the back of guerrilla activity in northern Missouri. Cox was made a hero, given a ceremonial sword, and promoted to major. He was sent out to track more guerrilla leaders. Meanwhile, more pro-Southern guerrilla leaders met their day of reckoning. Near Independence, George Todd was killed by a sniper. Near Louisville, Kentucky, Quantrell was killed in a skirmish with federal guerrillas. And in more conventional warfare, Sterling Price's Confederate column was turned back near the Kansas-Missouri border just south of Westport, sparing and essentially saving the free state of Kansas, and in doing so, punishing Missouri. As Price retreated, Federals pursued and cut down many of Price's mounted force. Jayhawker Jennison and his 15th Kansas got their licks in, as did his old 7th Kansas Cavalry. Those two units' actions rivaled that of Quantrell, Todd, and Anderson's, writing new bloody chapters in this harrowing civil war within a civil war. All in America's heartland. During the winter of 1864 and 65, the handwriting of the war's outcome may have been on the wall, but along the Kansas-Missouri border, there were those who ignored it. Revenge and retaliation still the order of the day. Though the bands were smaller and the leaders lesser known, bloodletting remained. When word finally reached Kansas that Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox, there was great rejoicing. In western Missouri, stunned disbelief. Before them, the stark reality of not only southern defeat, but of torched homes and lost loved ones who had died in vain. Their part of the world gutted, a blasted wasteland. Indeed, that area of Missouri was known for quite some time as simply the Burnt District. In Johnson, Cass, and Jackson counties, all that remained were chimneys, 
In Barton County, only six families remained. When the end finally came, most guerrillas chose to surrender to authorities. Those surrendered, their war did not truly end, for Reconstruction politics humiliated, harassed, and haunted many for some time. And then for some, defeat was too bitter a pill to swallow. They went west or south to Texas. Some turned to crime like the James and the Youngers. For most, however, time and several generations were required to bury the past. Please allow me a chance to let my mind wander and wonder. Indeed, amongst some contemporary Kansans and Missourians whose families sunk roots in America's heartland as early as the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, there may still be a few that insist it's still not over. For some, their deep-seated passions now displayed not on battlefields, but on athletic fields. I understand the world of sports marketing, but find it most interesting that when the universities of Kansas and Missouri compete, the contests are known as part of the border war. It is an intense rivalry, but I do wonder perhaps masked by frenzied chants of rock, chalk, jayhawk, or Mizzou's rousing fight tiger. Are there those that heard handed down stories about troubled days and embattled ground that took place over 150 years ago? A fighting that today would run along the stretch of I-70 that connects Lawrence, Kansas, and Columbia, Missouri. The two separated by some 164 miles, but historically united by a dark past. Wrestling as we are now with issues that applied then and now, it's not too far-fetched to understand that though the conflict has long since passed, there are old wounds that still bleed. When next we gather, we look back over time's shoulder to the first days of October 1862, when the 16th President of the United States traveled to the site of the bloodiest single day in American history, to a town in western Maryland, Sharpsburg, to the Army of the Potomac encamped along Antietam Creek, to visit its commander, Major General George B. McClellan. At stake, when Abraham Lincoln and Little Mac met, the future of the war in the Eastern Theater, a conflict that was now not only a war to preserve the Union, but committed to abolishing the institution of slavery. I hope you'll join us and hope you continue to be responsible and safe. We are so pleased to announce that yet another has joined our ranks for this particular project, we welcome a new patron, James Hall. Thank you so very much for your kindness and for your willingness to be a part of all of this. Thank you, James. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.